Thank you. Hey, welcome Sunridge, welcome guests. If you've never been here before, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, I'm just so thrilled. You know, our church, we desire to be a place where you can grow deep in your faith. And that deep faith uh, generates in you a desire to bring hope and live love in the world. And we hope that our church is a place where you can sink your roots and you can grow as you lock arms with other people and dig into the Word of God with us and allow God's truth to change who you are. And, uh, and yet we want to be a church that's also safe for people that are exploring uh, faith in Christ. And I, and I hope that, that's, that there are some of you here today. Uh, and I just want you to know that um, what we do on this campus is not, an, is not we're, we're not a fortress. We're not trying to uh, set ourselves apart in some way that makes ourselves uh, better than. This is, this is not a fort, it's a hospital. It's a hospital for broken people. And all of us are broken in some way. Uh, so uh, thank you for being here. Um, <clears throat> in their book, uh, your, your New Money Mindset, authors James Moline and Brad Hewitt identified five attitudes that Christians have about money when it comes to money. And the first at the kind of like the bottom of the chart is surviving. If you describe yourself as, a, as someone who's surviving financially, uh, you, you are, you're fighting just for the basic needs in life. You might be working one, two, three jobs in order just, just to keep a roof over your head. And probably you can't even do that. You're probably uh, in need of assistance, either public assistance or maybe you're getting help from family. And this, this makes up about 6% of the Christian community. And doing slightly better than those that are surviving are the strugglers. And if you're struggling, uh, you're, you're living paycheck to paycheck. Again, you know, it might be multiple paychecks, but, you know, there's just, you're just one click away from disaster. Just one little thing could happen to you and you're going to be in financial ruin. If you're in a struggling phase, uh, often you, you've struggled even in your relationships with other people because of the cracks that form uh, in your life because of this struggle, whether you just have no time for people or maybe you've had to depend on people a lot and you find people kind of breaking away from you. Uh, the, if you're in survival mode, you represent uh, 11% of the Christian community. <clears throat> now, Doing slightly better than a, a struggler or survivor is those of you that would call yourself stable. And this makes up about 32% of the Christian community. Someone who's stable is, uh, you're, you're not living paycheck to paycheck, but you're pretty close. And uh, if, you, you know, you're, you're not really secure, you don't feel like everything's good with you, but, but you're making it. And yet again, you know, you just need one big event to kind of spin you into disaster. Now, above uh, the stable, uh, we have the secure. And if you're secure, uh, you represent 38% of the Christian community. If you're secure, you, you have a good job. Uh, you're doing more than just thinking about today. You're thinking about the future as well. You might even be putting some money away. You might have a retirement. You might have a pension. But you have a, you have a secure job, and you're not really stressing about what's going to happen uh, today or tomorrow. <clears throat> but you don't really feel like you have extra. 
if you're in a secure category, you have enough for you. But uh, you, t- you have tended over the years, even as your income has risen, to kind of keep it all like you, you kept your lifestyle going with your income. So, you know, you're paying your bills and you're solid. You're even saving. Uh, but sometimes you, you struggle with uh, your enslavement to saving just like the strugglers or the survivors are struggling just to pay their bills. And then the last category are the surplus Christians. You, you feel like you're set. You, you have a good job. You have a strong income. You're, you're planning for the future. You're putting away for your retirement. And you have kept your outflow below what your income is. And so you have, you have space. You have a surplus. And so you, you feel like you have extra to give to the things that matter to you. In fact, if you're in the surplus uh, phase, uh, the majority of Christians who live there give 10% or more to a charity or to a church. So as you look at these different categories overall, and you think about your situation, where would you put yourself? Think about that. You know, if these stats are accurate, and I believe that they are, um, it means that among Christians, 50% of us feel financially insecure. And it also means that more than 85% of Christians feel that they do not have enough to be generous outside of their own family or situation. And interestingly, the studies have proven that for the, for the greater majority of us, the answer is not more money. The answer is not more income. In fact, the, for most of us, the answer for security and joy is not more money. A thick wallet can never replace a full heart. We're in a series right now, we're wrapping up today, that we've called Money Myths. You know, and a myth is a belief or an idea that is widely accepted but false. And we've looked at three previous myths, but today the myth I want to talk about is this. In money, we can trust. Because I think even the Christian community, it's easy for us to believe that, well, what I really need is more. Now, that may be true. But experts say often that is not the issue. The issue is what we're going to trust in. Are we going to trust in money? Or do we trust in God? In fact, the big idea for today is that God invites us into a trust relationship. Isn't, that's the essence of following God. Of being a follower of Jesus Christ is not a shove, but an invitation to follow him and to trust him with our situation, with our hearts, with our decisions. In John 14, 1, Jesus was speaking with his disciples, and he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And this invitation to trust Jesus and his Father was, was made in, in the middle of him revealing to his disciples that he was going to be executed. And this is their beloved rabbi, this is their friend, this is the person that they've staked their claims on as the Messiah, 
and he's telling them, I'm going to die. And so they are obviously in despair. And they're obviously anxious. And it's in that point of anxiety, he says, don't despair. Don't be anxious. Trust me. You know, there are many things that Christians can be anxious about. And if Hewitt and Moline are right, somewhere between 50 and 85% of Christians are anxious about money. And it's into that anxiety that Jesus says to you and to me, trust me. We're invited into a trust relationship with God. Now, what does that mean to trust? Trust is not like believing in the tooth fairy. Trust is based on substance. In fact, in your notes, I've given you this definition of trust, that it's a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. See, trust is the foundation of all relationships, including our relationship with God. If you've ever been in a relationship where there was not trust, then you know how important, how foundational trust is to any relationship. And when it comes to our relationship with God and the Bible and the things that we believe about God, there are things that we read in the Bible about God. There are things that people tell us about God. There are things that we hope about God. There are things that we believe in quotes about God, and then there are things that we know. And it's the things that we know that fall into the trust category. And God's invitation to us is all-encompassing. His invitation for us to trust is all-encompassing, and it includes money. If you're a Christian this morning, you are trusting in God for your eternal salvation. All of you. There's no other way to place your faith in Christ other than placing all of it at his feet. And those of you that have done that, many of you are also trusting in God in other things. You're trusting in God in the way you do family. You're trusting in God in your marriage. You're trusting in God regardless of the values and and things that our culture is saying. You're, You're trusting in God in your values and your priorities. You've decided intentionally to do that, and God also calls us to trust him with our finances. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 19, he specifically says this. He says, God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul says, God is inviting you and I to trust him, even in our finances. Now, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you think that's hard? At times, it's not hard for me because I'm a pastor, (laughs) right? So if trust is a firm belief in the reliability, the truth, the, uh, the ability or the strength of someone or something, do we trust God in this area? For many of us, it's a challenge. Maybe there's a reason why there are so many texts and passages that God reminds us of how he's trustworthy, how he's steadfast, how he invites us to trust him. 
We have to be reminded over and over and over again. I think that there are some things that make trusting God hard. And I think they're common to all of us. The first one is the way we think. Worldly thinking makes it hard to trust God. When I say worldly thinking, I'm talking about thinking that's not from God. James talked about two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from above, wisdom that comes from below. And both are wisdom. James is not saying that one is, you know, like not wisdom. It is wise in the worldly sense, and it may lead to success in this time and age and in, in his day as well. But it comes from a different place. There are different kinds of wisdom. There's different ways of thinking. And one of the ways that I think Christians we get kind of all tangled up in our culture today is like we're constantly being bombarded through marketing. And we're being told that we're unhappy. We're unhappy until we get this product. But once we get the product, we'll be happy, which is always true. <laughs> right? You might add something, you know, I'm... I'm not uh, immune to this. I've purchased products that were going to make me happy. And you know what? They did make me happy for a little while, but then, then the same company usually had something else, a better version of that, and then I could even be happier if I had that. And so we're left in a constant state of unhappiness because of the messaging. You know, Solomon... Uh, was one of the sons of David, and he became king. And the Old Testament says that he was the wisest man living at that time. And he wrote a small little book in your Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And it is full of wise sayings, but it has kind of a dark and despairing tone because Solomon wasn't always following God. But yet, a lot of what he said, even in his despair, was true. And here's, here's one of those things that he said in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has money enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Boy, can that be true. British author James Wallman coined this phrase, stuffocation. And then he wrote a book with that title. And his point is this, that most of us have an idea of what we think is necessary for life and for happiness. And indeed, you know, there's a measure of truth in, in those, the way that we think. There are some things that are necessities in life. But what happens over time is that that list that we need continues to grow until the list is really long of what will make us happy. And so we collect stuff. And we're stuffocating because of it. The uh, anthropologists at UCLA did a study a few years ago. And instead of, you know, anthropologists usually dig up old cultures and then, like, learn about them. Well, what they did is they, they approached the modern American home with an anthropological perspective. And so they, they studied homes. And in the smallest homes that they measured, under 1,000 square feet, uh, two bedrooms, one bath, the researchers found that there are 2,260 items in the smallest house. 
Now, you have to know that that's only what was in view. That's not like they didn't open up cabinets or drawers. 2,260 things in the smallest house. But they also noted that nine out of ten, ten of us had so many things that we kept our household stuff in the garage. And three-quarters of those who did had so much stuff in their garage that they couldn't put their car in the garage. Now, don't, don't reveal who you are. And what the uh, researchers from UCLA concluded is that Americans are suffering from a clutter crisis. Or as Wallman says in his book, we are stuffocating. You know what an idol is? You know, we think of an idol as like a, a thing made out of stone or wood, and you bow down and worship it. And we think of like, you know, ancient cultures or whatever. But, you know, an idol is anything that draws our attention away from God. And maybe we don't bow down and worship things in that sense. But isn't it true that, like, it's easy to get distracted from God because of the things that we feel like we need. And once we get the thing, then we just need another thing. The Israelites, when they escaped Egypt, you know, they were anxious about their situation. They're out in the desert wandering around, and they're concerned that they won't have food. And so they pray, and they beg God, God, take care of us, give us food. And you know what God gave them, right? He gave them manna, which is like this sticky bread substance. And they said, oh, it's awesome, you know, manna is great. And after a while, they started saying, manna, 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 I'm sick of manna. And then they said, but God, we want meat. It's like, not much changes, does it? <laughs> Worldly thinking has merges into Christian thinking. And so that it's hard to tease apart consumerism and Christianity. Last week, Bob did such a great job. How, give it up for Brother Bob, huh? This morning, I saw him in the office, and he goes, man, I feel so much better about coming to church today. And I said, strangely, I don't. But um, he, he quipped that coveting causes credit. So, like, we just keep doing that, and it's burying us. In his book, Christian Atheist, Craig Rochelle uh, it just addresses all these issues in, w in, in which Christians are living as atheists. And one of the ways we do so, he points out, is in our financial dealings. It's like it's hard to tell the difference between a way a Christian lives and a, someone who is not a Christian, often, in the, just in the way we do our money. You know, Jesus acknowledged that we're always going to be challenged in this way, that there's a tug and a pull on a believer to trust in other things. In Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can trust two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot trust both God and money. We're always gonna be in that tension. And in fact, the only way to, to break free is to change the way we think, to break away from worldly thinking. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 12, too, when he said, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, when you become a Christian, 
Your thinking changes. It thinks you, you're about your values, about your priorities. It changes how you think family goes and how relationships go and what you do with your time. And it also, our thinking changes in the way we think about money. And I have found that in the places where my thinking has changed, there's really like three things that have influenced that. It's number one from reading the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, your thinking is not going to change. And if you're reading oodles of People magazine and Instagram and not the Bible, your thinking is going to change in the wrong way. You need to read the Bible. And then exposure is the second thing. It's like I have to guard my mind and my heart against being exposed to the constant bombardment that comes at me. And, and when I can't, I have to be aware that it's affecting me. But also I want to expose my life and my heart to the things of God and worship with my church and fellowshipping with other believers and interacting with them and being in groups and serving alongside one another. These are the ways that, are, that we are influenced in our priorities and values and the things that we think. And then lastly, prayer. You know, we, we tend to pray about the things that we're worried about. And, you know, most of us pray about money when we don't think we have enough. And that's it. But what if we prayed while we had plenty? And our prayer was not, God, give me more. It's like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay the electric bill? My prayer is, God, you have given me resources. What, what, what do you see in this for me? How can I be, you know, reflect the heart of Christ here today? How can I take what you have given me and make a difference for the kingdom's sake in the world around me? What if we prayed like that? We pray like that for our children. You don't just pray for your children when they, uh, when they get arrested. You pray more when they do, right? We pray for them all the time because we love them. What if we prayed constantly about our resources as well? We, see, we have to be on constant alert about how we think about money because we're constantly being bombarded with worldly thinking. And that makes it hard to trust God. The second thing that makes it hard to trust God with money is fear. And I call it irrational fear. I have been involved in the and teaching all of my grandkids and certainly all of my kids in how to swim. And you guys have kids or your grandparents, like you're, you t when they don't know how to swim and you take them in the pool, what do they do? They're, they're holding on to you for dear life, like you're going to drop them or something. And you're like, even if you just pull them, pull them away and do this, they're panicking. They're scratching your eyeballs out trying to grab a hold of you, knocking your sunglasses off. And I've, try, I've tried to teach my grandkids even how to float. You know, have you ever tried to teach a kid how to float that's afraid? And you, you put them on their back, and they, they, it's like, this is your grandpa. That's what I say to them. I'm your grampy. I'm not going to drown you. I'm not, I've never held any of them under the water longer than is appropriate. <laughs> you know, so what do they not trust me for? It's irrational fear. How can you be afraid of your grampy in the pool? But we all are. They want to trust, but their fear overcomes them. And it's an irrational fear, especially when it comes to your grampy. Now, Jesus acknowledges that we're going to be fearful about our daily needs. 
And this is one of the most often quoted. I'm going to read you a passage and go, I know that passage, but the most often misapplied passage as well, and I'll show you why. In Luke 12, 22, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. Now, I have often heard this passage quoted by well-meaning Christians who have totally rejected God's truths and his principles of finances. And then we start claiming this verse, this passage. That is not the intent. Jesus is not advocating for irresponsibility. What he's saying is, I know you have fears. I know you have fears, but they're irrational because God, your Father, cares about you. And you know, the only way to overcome fear is to take a trust step. It's not enough to say, don't fear, Fear not. It's not enough to to just quote verses loudly. Fear is not conquered by focusing on the negative of fear. Fear is conquered by trust experiences. We learn to trust. That is true about any area where you have trust in your life. You learn to trust your grampy as he holds you in the water because you let him hold you. And you will never Learn to trust your grampy. This message is for my grandchildren. Until you let him do it. In a swimming lesson, your kids, again, they learn to trust their swimming moves because they took a step and they trust their swimming instructor. If you climb rocks, you're fearful at first, but eventually you learn to trust in your equipment. If you're a soldier... You learn to trust your experience and your uh, company and uh, your equipment that you've been given, even though you fear for your life. If we learn to trust in relationships, you don't meet someone on the street and give them your checkbook or your bank card and say, now we're in love. Let's just, you know, here's everything about me. No, you learn to trust people. And we learn to trust God about money by taking steps. If you want to vanquish financial fear in your life, see the end of this passage where Jesus says, don't worry about all these things, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Where is trust found? It is found in obedience. Obedience leads to trust. Now, that's important because often we think the other way. As soon as I get enough trust... I can gin up enough trust, then I'm going to try a step of obedience. 
But trust doesn't work that way. Trust works by you taking the step and then you learn to have confidence. And that's how it works with God, trusting God as well. Seek first is another way of saying, try some things. Take an incremental step and see what happens. The reason why many Christians are so fearful about trusting God with their finances is we haven't sought first. We haven't taken the step. You know, I think that if your grampy can be trusted to float you in the pool, God can be trusted with your finances. He has your very best interest at heart. Lastly, it's difficult to trust God with our money because of our hearts. We have divided hearts. How many of you have seen that, the videos where they show the trapping of monkeys by they reach in a gourd or a jar that's narrower at the entrance than it is inside, and they have like fruit or a bait for the monkey, and they reach in and they grab it, and they, can't, they won't let go, so they're trapped? Anybody seen those videos? If you've never done it, just go on YouTube and plug in monkey trap. It's not a myth. It's true that, you know, you can trap a monkey by putting some bait in a jar that's narrow, and when they grab it, they, they don't realize that if they just let go of the bait, they can get loose. But they continue to hold on, and their captor walks right up and throws a little net around them and, like, captures them with no harm to the monkey. And I think that that's a great picture of what it's like to be a Christian whose heart is divided. We're like, we don't know really what we want to hold on to, right? And we won't let go of the thing that is really enslaving us. Psalm 86.11, the psalmist said, "Teach Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided I want you to see again like this pattern where the psalmist says, teach me the way, and what happens? I will take a step. I will walk in your way. And you know, that leads to an undivided heart. A divided heart is at issue, is the the basis for so many issues that Christians face. In fact, your heart is the key to everything. A divided heart is what causes an affair. A divided heart uh, in a marriage is what causes you to split up because you don't really know if, it, if you want to stick with it. A divided heart is what makes sometimes people lose their job because they show up and they don't know if they really want to be there. A divided heart causes Christians to lead, lead average lives because we, we don't really know what, we, what really, really matters to us. You ever heard the saying, their heart's not in it? James talks about that. He says a, a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. It's like you're divided. It's, it's true of every part of our lives. If your heart isn't in it, you, you will be less than. 
What happens is I, I think that worldly thinking and fear combine forces and create divided hearts. Last year, um, I was diagnosed with something called um, paroxysmal AFib. I just said a really good medical term. I had to practice that, by the way. I think I should get applause for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if I mentioned to you before, but I used to be a fireman and I was an EMT, so it's like being a doctor, <laughs> almost the same. Um, but if you don't know what uh, AFib is, it's like uh, you have two chambers in your heart. You know, there's the top part, the atria, and then the bottom is the ventricle, and it's meant to, to beat like this. But when you have atrial fibrillation, and mine is very intermittent, um, Instead of going squish, squish, it goes squish, squish, squeak, squish, 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 hee. And so it's not beating in sync, right? Don't worry, you know, everything is... <laughs> and so, you know, I'd had this for a long time, you know, it comes and goes, and, uh, but it never really affected me. Uh, and, but last year, like, I would be mountain biking some of these hills right behind the church, and, like, there's these climbs that I could normally make, they would be strenuous, and uh, you'd hear like grunting and groaning and panting, but like I was not making it. And then I would feel this flippy floppy in uh, my chest, and you know, I'm like, it's the big one, Elizabeth, and uh, what a way to go, Lord, you know, take me now. And uh, so then I went to the doctor, they put me through all these tests, gave me a, a thing to wear, blah, 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 and in the end they said, you know, take a baby aspirin every day and a Flintstone vitamin, and you're going to be okay. So um, I tell you that story because when your heart's not beating in sync, what you could normally do, you can't do because you're not perfusing well. And I think that's what it's like to have a divided heart as a Christian. There are things that should be easily attainable for you. There are things that you could accomplish, but you won't be able to because your heart's not in it. There's only one thing more dangerous than an out-of-sync heart to the Christian, and it's a calloused heart. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13, 17. He said, there are people whose heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. And he said, there are people who, with their lips, they they profess me, but their hearts are far from me. And what he was getting down to is that of all things that God wants from us, the most important thing is our heart. If God has your heart, he has you. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because when your heart's in it, you can figure it out, right? If, if your heart's in your marriage and you've got problems, you'll figure it out. If, if your heart's in your game, in your sport, you know, you may, you may not have all the talent. You may, not have, you may not be the fastest person, the strongest person, but you'll do well if you give it all your heart.
If, if your heart's not in your church, you'll just kind of be there. And you won't accomplish what God wants to do through you. If your heart's not in your job, you see, you see what I'm saying? Like The key is the heart. It is the most important thing. And if, and if our heart's in it, we figure it out. And if my heart trusts God, whatever challenges I have in figuring out my finances or taking FPU, almost 100 of you signed up for FPU. That's amazing. We start tonight. Like, it's like you'll just figure it out because your heart is where it should be. I'm going to have the band come up. And, you know, when we started this series, uh, we said that this is all about dispelling myths. They're just things that we believe about money that aren't true. They're readily accepted. And we talked about how it's, it's easy for Christians to, to kind of think money's evil. And yet we talked about that money can bring you happiness if it's placed in right relationship with God. It's a resource. It's a gift from God. And, of course, using God's gifts His way brings happiness. We talked about how it's easy for Christians to kind of make a, a false distinction between the secular world and the sacred world, and we think that our jobs don't matter, yet God is using you through your vocation. It is your calling. It's your second calling, and God is doing things in you and through you, through your job, and of course, last week, Bob talked about how easily it is to believe that, like, I just need that extra thing, and, you know, we'll go into debt over it, 12 easy Payments, that's all it takes. But today what we talked about is this myth that money can be trusted, that we can place our trust in money. We can only place our trust in God when it comes to money. You know, Cindy gave me my allowance this week, so I have 20 bucks left. And um, you know what it says on the back of this $20 bill? In God we trust. Isn't that an irony that American currency says, in God we trust? Do we? We can. We can trust God with our money. And if you're a Christian, and you know, I want to tell you, like, if you've never tried trusting God in your money, it's going to be hard because you're, you're constantly bombarded with worldly thinking because you're going to have fears. Most of them are irrational. And then, because all of that's going to add up to a divided heart. And you're, it's going to be hard to trust God because you're going to be in and out, and you're never going to be consistent with that. You know, when it comes to trusting God with our finances, and what I, what I love about this series is we've never asked you to give to Sunridge, and I'm not doing that today. We've intentionally put that aside because we wanted to address deeper issues and trusting God in this area is the deepest issue of all. And I want to tell you, Christian, you can, you can learn this. If you haven't learned it, you can learn it today, and you can turn a corner. Or you can choose to put it off, and you can learn it 30 days from now or a month or a year or 10 years or 30 years from now, and you can just keep clicking on. And some of you, you're just never going to learn it. And you know who's going to lose? You are. Because what you're really saying is that God can't be trusted. 
And so I have a challenge for you. Wherever you are in your spiritual walk, this week and for one month, I challenge you to trust God with your finances. Whatever that means to you, whatever changes that might mean, or just keep on steady, just stick, stick with your program. Whatever that means, you trust God for one month. And then you get to the end of the month and you say, ah, that didn't work, then quit. But if you find at the end of 30 days that you say, you know, God came through. He was faithful. Then turn one month into two months. And just keep going. I promise you. I don't get up and promise a lot of stuff. I promise you it'll change your life. And, and maybe more importantly, it will change the kingdom of God. Because a group of people this large, trusting God in every, other, every area of life, even their finances, world-changing. No doubt about it. Why don't we do that? Or, or do you want to wait 10 years? I don't. You know, I'm, I, I know that there are people in our audience today, you, you're, you haven't stepped across faith, and, and, I, and I, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm after your money. I'm not after your money. But I can tell you something about being a Christian. It means to trust God. It's going to be a total change of the way you approach life. But if you, if you want to explore faith, then I give you the same challenge I just gave Christian people today. Not, not so much about your money, but in whatever it means for you to trust God, take that step. And then you, after a month, if, if Christianity doesn't work after a month of doing things God's way and giving your heart to him, if it doesn't work, then just quit and go golfing on Sunday morning. Do something different. Because I believe that God is faithful. And I, his word says he is. And um, it really just comes down to what we want to do with our hearts. Let's pray.